the good old Grateful Dead cast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. I'm Rich Mahan with Jesse Jarno, exploring the music and legacy of the Grateful Dead for the committed and the curious. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow deadheads, welcome to season seven of the good old Grateful Dead cast. I'm your co-host, Rich Mahan. Thank you very much for tuning in. We're taking a bit of a side trip in today's episode, exploring the side bands Jerry Garcia was involved in in 1973, including the Garcia Saunders Band and Olden in the Way, and we look at how they influenced the Grateful Dead during this period. Lots of great guests in this one, so buckle up. Grateful Dead have also just announced a brand new box set that we know everybody's going to love. Here comes Here Comes Sunshine 1973. This new release is a 17-CD limited edition set available exclusively from Dead.net. It features five previously unreleased concerts recorded during the band's transformative spring of 1973 tour. The shows included in this set are Iowa State Fairgrounds, Des Moines, Iowa, 513-73, the Campus Stadium at UCSB in Santa Barbara, 520-73, Kizar Stadium in San Francisco, 526-73, and RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C. on 69 and 610-73. A the 610-73 show will also be available as a standalone release, in two configurations, a 4-CD set and an 8-LP set. The 17-CD set and the 4-CD set will be released on June 30th and will also be available digitally. The 8-LP set comes on July 28th, and you can pre-order all of the Here Comes Sunshine 1973 releases now over at dead.net. Head on over to dead.net slash deadcast and check out all of our past episodes of the good old Grateful Deadcast, including our complete seasons one through six. You can link from there to your favorite podcasting platform so you can listen where you like to listen. Please help out the good old Grateful Deadcast by subscribing, hitting the like button, leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and sharing an episode on your social media. Thanks very much. It helps a lot more than you think. We now have transcripts for many of your favorite Deadcast episodes available for your reading pleasure. We recently uploaded Season 1, so pop on over to dead.net slash deadcast dash index and check them out. Thanks to everyone who has left their stories over at stories.dead.net. We're now asking you to share your stories about going to shows in 1973. Catch any heaters in this glorious year? The dead were on fire, and we want to hear your first-hand account of the good times. Share those stories over at stories.dead.net, and you may just hear yourself on the Deadcast. Thank you. Well, this episode of the Deadcast takes a special side trip into Jerry Garcia's extracurricular projects in 1973, exploring his partnerships with organist Merle Saunders and the legendary bluegrass group Old and in the Way with guests David Grisman and Peter Rowan as we discover how these projects impacted the Dead's music. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesse Jarno.
special episodes of television shows would sometimes begin with their characters breaking the fourth wall, speaking directly into the camera, just like I am now. Or, like in Masterpiece Theater, with a host sitting in an easy chair smoking a pipe. So let's start today's episode like that. Imagine me, sitting in a room different from the one you are in now. There are lots of dead tapes and old issues of the Golden Road strewn about. I'm in my desk chair. It's not tobacco. And since the deadcast is for families and proudly podcasting everywhere in the world, this week, I'm also in drag. Much love to all of our trans, non-binary, and otherwise awesome deadhead friends out there, especially those stranded in places with people who lately, somehow, have found time to hate. And since you're wondering, it's a casual, beachy sundress sort of situation with spangled pom-pom things on the sleeve. Pretty comfy, really. But the real reason we're starting off like this today is to note that we often get requests for episodes about the Jerry Garcia band or his work with David Grisman or some other aspect of Garcia's career outside the dead. And we have to remind the requester that structurally we are in fact the good old Grateful Dead cast and that Garcia's side career is out of our jurisdiction. We've made a few exceptions over the years, specifically a bonus episode about Garcia's years in the folk and bluegrass scenes and one about his self-titled solo debut. Our mission this season is to get into the new Here Comes Sunshine box set, which captures five fantastic dead shows from 1973. But to get into the Grateful Dead in 1973, a side trip is necessary. And as we learned from a business perspective, things were kind of blurry back then. That's Finders Keepers, sometimes known just as Keepers. Jerry Garcia and Merle Saunders with Bill Vitt and John Kahn from their 1973 album Live at Keystone, recorded in Berkeley that summer and in the works behind the scenes of Here Comes Sunshine. Garcia had been playing with the band for nearly three years, though they still didn't have a proper name, which was symbolic of Garcia's approach to playing outside the Grateful Dead. Here's how he described it to KQRS in Minneapolis in October 1971. I also play with another fella out in uh, San Francisco named Merle Saunders, who's an organ player, uh, and Tom Fogarty, who used to play in Creed's Clearwater, and uh, the same rhythm section that's on that literal record, uh, John Kahn and Bill Bitt. We play around in bars around San Francisco. Just for kicks? Yeah. It's like groovy to be able to play in a situation which is, which is, uh, you know, not of any great interest, you know, to anybody, but just a chance to get off. It was also mega casual. But in 1973, that started to change. In early 1973, Jerry Garcia co-founded another new band, the bluegrass quintet Olden in the Way, who would record their own legendary live album that year and have a transformative effect on bluegrass itself. Like the Garcia-Saunders group, they maintained a mostly parallel existence to the Grateful Dead, 
that was also going on at the same time as the five shows on the Here Comes Sunshine box set. Joju Peel is the proprietor of JerryBase.com, the most incredible living source of dates and data around Garcia and the Dead. Joe is also working on his own book, Fate Music, shaping up to be the deepest account of Garcia's musical life outside the Grateful Dead. Welcome back, Joe. To me, this period is the most blissful period of Jerry's life. He's got 17 irons in the fire. He's crushing it in every project. The music is interesting and diverse and flowing. You know, his life is set up at Stinson with his wife and kids, and they're pretty happy. You know, the commercial success is coming. It's just perfect, man. I mean, it's just a moment in time that I just wish he could have, you know, had more of. In our last episode, we spoke about the range of businesses launched around the dead in 1973 and the surrounding years. There was Grateful Dead Records, out-of-town tours, fly-by-night travel, hard truckers' speaker cabinets, and the clothing boutique Kumquat May to go along with Alembic and Ice Nine Publishing. Though it stayed formally casual, 1973 was also the year that Jerry Garcia might first be considered a business of his own. Richard Loren would play a pivotal role in Jerry Garcia and the Dead's universe starting in 1973. He wrote a great memoir titled High Notes, which we've linked to at dead.net slash deadcast. In the 60s, Richard's resume included time working with The Doors, The Jefferson Airplane, and Liberace. But his connection to the Dead came quite circuitously through mandolinist David Grisman and a band that would play a surprising role in Jerry Garcia's musical life. I knew David Grisman when I was his agent, when he, I, I was working for The Doors. He and Peter Rowe were playing on, on Earth Opera. And, and the weather is strange, no summer this year. In the days of the war, but the Red Sox are winning. That was The Red Sox Are Winning by Earth Opera, a band featuring Peter Rowan and David Grisman that we'll be hearing a bit more about today. To jump forward, though, by 1970, they'd mostly dissolved. In 1970, David and I had a partnership, basically, and uh, we represented Peter Rowan's two younger brothers for a while. And we were living in New York. In the summer of 1970, Grisman had visited California, run into Jerry Garcia at a Grateful Dead Jefferson Airplane softball game, and wound up playing some overdubs on American Beauty. When there is no pebble tossed, nor wind to blow, reach out your hand. If your cup be empty. We told that story on our Ripple episode. But a few weeks later, the dead were in New York at the Fillmore East. So uh, David calls Jerry at the hotel, and uh, he had tickets put aside. So we went to the show, and after the show, like four in the morning, Jerry, David, and I are backstage, and I get to meet Jerry for the first time. So Jerry said, well, what are you up to? And, and uh, 
David told him what he and I were up to with the Rowan Brothers. And, he said, and we were having a rough time getting gigs for them and then breaking them through with a record deal. And Jerry said, well, you guys here come to California. Well, in the New York second, you know, we were in California. That was Dreamless from the first Earth Opera album. And I went out first. And David came out later with the Rowan Brothers. Gino Cipollina was the other Cipollina, the famous Cipollina's father. And he was a kind of a realtor kind of guy. And I was introduced to him by Marty Ballin. And he said, I said, I was looking for a place, both for me and for David and then the Rowan Brothers when, when they came west to, to San Francisco. And he said, well, I got this place in, in Stinson Beach you should check out. So we found out the compound on the water in Stinson Beach, and it was just a great a great place to hang. And there was a, a garage that we turned into a studio, and it was, it was our little compound trying to, to break the Rowan Brothers. Serendipitously, Jerry happened to just be living at the top of the hill, and we lived on the water. Jerry Garcia, Mountain Girl, and their growing family had moved to Stinson Beach in the summer of 1971, purchasing a house with the money made from his first solo album. So I said, you know, hey, Jerry, we just got a place. I just got a place down on the water, you know. So that became a, a place where there was a Jerry became really friendly, a lot more friendly with David and, and, and the Rowan brothers. When the Rowan brothers caved, they didn't make it commercially. Jerry asked me, uh, he said, would you be my manager? He says, for all my projects outside of the Grateful Dead, because Jerry knew my background as an agent. It was 72 that he actually asked me to be his manager. Jerry Garcia's solo career had begun with complete informality, playing Monday Night Jams at the Matrix in San Francisco when he wasn't playing with the dead. Merle Saunders joined up in the fall of 1970, and by early 1971, he and Garcia were gigging multiple nights a week when the dead weren't on the road. By the end of 1972, it was getting hard for Garcia to keep track. When I became his manager, we got an office in Mill Valley. We were both living in Stinson Beach. Had my secretary from the Rome brothers. We got, you know, we, we rented a house. And every morning at nine o'clock in the morning, Jerry would come in to the office. It was kind of like a clubhouse scene we had. John Kahn would come in and, you know, just Jerry's friends. It would be a place to hang out. He'd come in, you know, drop down his briefcase, roll a big fat one, do a couple lines, and the morning began. We, I just, we did everything in that little office. We talked about when he could play gigs with Merle and Jerry, when the dead weren't playing, and so on. I, I'd, I'd interface with the dead at the time and find out through when the, I think it was uh, Cutler that was actually doing the booking at the time. I wasn't sure. Jerry never wanted to interfere with any of the gigs that the dead were on. You know, it was always dead came first. And then whenever there was free time, Jerry wanted to play. He wanted to play all the time when the dead weren't playing. So it was my job to make that happen. We did local tours, local gigs. A bunch of guys getting high talking about where we want to play. And then Jerry would leave at noon and I'd book all the shows. Sounds like a fun scene. A bunch of us were interested in the occult. And in my office with Jerry is where 
people came to talk about that kind of stuff that nobody else talked about. You know, the metaphysical, the occult, the weirdnesses, aliens, all that kind of stuff. We were all into that stuff. Not all the dead, but Jerry, me, John Kahn, Alan Trist, Phil came in every once in a while. And our relationship was unnatural from the beginning. We were a great team. We helped each other and him navigate a business that was volatile and crazy, including all the members of the Grateful Dead and the crew. He needed me to be, he needed a manager, you know, and to take care of all of the business end of his affairs. But he wanted a friend to do that. I went to every show of Old in the Way and every show of Jerry Garcia band, Merle Saunders band. Every one of them. Until 1981, when I quit. That was Jerry Garcia and Howard Wales with John Kahn and Bill Vitt at The Matrix, probably recorded July 6, 1970. Now Side Trips Volume 1, from the aptly named track Free Flight. Garcia played with Wales throughout the spring and summer of that year, but the open jams got a little too popular. We spoke with the late Howard Wales during our American Beauty season. You can hear more of this conversation in our Broke Down Palace episode. It was one of those small places, you know, people coming from all over town. And then, of course, when everybody found out about this jam session, that meant that anybody to everybody or whatever just, you know, came down and it became a really not a good thing. With too many guests dropping by, Howard Wales retreated and Merle Saunders took over in the fall of 1970. Merle was easy to get along with. One of the sweetest, gentle souls you could meet. Being in his presence was a gift. He wasn't a heavy talker. But when he said something, it had meaning and it was meaningful. You know, he was a special man. By early 1971, the Garcia Saunders group was playing multiple nights a week at the Matrix and other bars around the Bay Area. Another key point in the band was the bassist. According to Garcia, he met John Kahn on the bandstand at the Matrix and didn't learn his name until one night when they shared a ride home. Here's Robert Hunter speaking with Blair Jackson in 2004, an interview included on the Live at Shoreline DVD. With John, he had somebody that he could play the blues with. The blues, and Jerry had a hunger to learn more and more about jazz and the blues. And uh, in came Merle and John at that point, who were both very, very masterful in those areas. And those were the directions Jerry wanted to go very much. And, uh, and they were good for him that way. And Though Garcia and Saunders were the nominal band leaders, Garcia formed a lasting musical bond with Khan. Here's how he described it to Bill Cooper on WRNW in 1982. Ever since uh, back when, when I played with Howard Wales and uh, through Merle Saunders and all the rest, uh, John and I have, have had this, I mean, actually all of the things that you hear of that are called the Jerry Garcia Band are in reality the John Conn and Jerry Garcia band, really. Uh-huh. He and I have a certain uh, simpatico, uh, uh, a certain concept of music, which is we're very like each other musically, I think, you know, with just enough difference to make it interesting. 
John was a, a wonderful wit, so dry, so funny. You know, one of the best combinations you could have around to have a good jaw with or just sit back and listen and, and be cracked up all the time was uh, Nicky Hopkins, John Conn, and Jerry <laughs> Garcia. My Funny Valentine from the Garcia Saunders Vit Con album, Live at Keystone. With Saunders, alongside R&B, blues, and open jams, Garcia began to play jazz standards for the first time, a vocabulary that would increasingly inform the music he made with the Grateful Dead starting in 1973. Though Jerry Garcia's work with Merle Saunders and his membership in Olden in the Way are rightly called side projects, each was also a full-time genuine band in its own right. Looked at another way, Working with Jerry Garcia was a side project for Merle Saunders. In 1972, he and John Kahn had been members of Paul Butterfield's touring band, while Merle also worked on soundtracks for movies like Fritz the Cat. Our guide to the Garcia Saunders project is Merle's teenage roadie. Please welcome to the Deadcast, Merle Saunders Jr. I would help him get the organ out of the house, into, into the van, and he'd take it down to the Keystone, and I would plug it in, put the pedals on, and turn it on and either hang out or or come back and get it like the next day. Steve Parrish and Joe Winslow, who's the guy that started Hard Truckers, were the roadies. And they, they gave me my first, I think, $12 was the first thing I made. But And I was probably 13 when that happened. That's some heavy gear to be moving around. It was on a dolly roller, so we could I could roll it around. And the Leslie, at a very early age, I learned how to pick that up and put it on, on stages. We didn't go to the gym. We just, we exercised with the musical equipment. For Merle Jr., it was the beginning of his own career in the music industry. I was always into <laughs> electronics and, and tinkering and making things work. Like I would pull the, pull the back off the B3 and make sure it was oiled so the, so the draw bars would work and stuff like that. Change the tubes and the, in the, in the Leslie and the power tubes that were in the back of the B3. In meeting Garcia, Merle Jr.'s father had joined a big musical family. My first remembrance of the Grateful Dead was going to Pigpen's Wake at Weir's house. That's the first time I remember being around the dead. I was a kid running around with all these, you know. I just tell people, like, I was around. They were my father's friends. My father was, I think, like, he was probably at least seven or eight years older than most of the other people. He was the only one that had kids that were. We were the oldest kids, me and my siblings. And it was basically me that hung out in that scene. But there were no kids really my age. It was definitely an after-school job with some odd hours. Yeah, if I was at the shows, I would do homework or I would just be, I would hang out. I I didn't really watch the music that much because it was I was a 13-year-old kid, and that wasn't the music of my generation. I was 12, 13, so I would sit in the room and listen to them rehearse. I was like the worst thing you'd want to do. You know, sit in the room with your father and watch him do a thing like this. His father's co-workers were generally pretty chill, though, and he got along well with Garcia. I played guitar, so he would show me stuff, but he was just, you know, like everybody else. He was, he was one of my father's friends. He wasn't mine. 
Well, I hung out with him when he was around. Yeah, I mean, he helped me with homework. In other ways, Merle Jr.'s dad was helping Garcia with his homework. Garcia was still learning, but as far as what they were playing and the type of, like my, well, Bill Vip, and Bill Vip was basically a jazz drummer. Con Con was like an R&B bass player. That's his thing. I mean, as, as much as I would consider him like an R&B, he loved like the Motown shit. He loved that kind of bass playing, the bass playing that carried the band. My father was like the soloist who could solo everywhere, and Vic could keep up with them. And Garcia was stepping out. The other guitar players my father played with, I mean, they were like, you know, people like Grant Green and Jackie King and guys like that who were who were technically amazing guitar players. But Garcia hung in there for, you know, he hung in there and learned it. I mean, that was the thing. Garcia was kind of into R&B because it was a different, the music was a different tempo than what the Grateful Dead played in, and it was more straight playing. And, and when I think of Garcia, it wasn't like early on. He was more of like an R&B player versus like what he eventually became to like the jam band player. Especially in 1971 and 1972, they were busy. They played two or three nights a week. They rehearsed. And my grandmother's garage is on Page and Ashbury Street, right down the street from Hay Street to the next block down. And which is why on that heavy turbulence record, there was a song called Welcome to the Basement. That's why that song is on there. Released in spring 1972, Heavy Turbulence was the second product of the band that started at The Matrix, released only a few months after Garcia and Wales' Hooterol, which had been recorded a bit earlier, in late 1970. I don't think Garcia plays on Welcome to the Basement, but he's on the rest. Let's pause, though, and hold on to the fact that in 1971 and 1972, if you were there at the right time, Jerry Garcia was apparently jamming in the hate, literally two and a half blocks from the dead's old place at 710 Ashbury. People kind of knew it was them because people would just be hanging out outside. People would just be lined. People would be lined up. There was a big apartment building across the street, and people would just be sitting out there listening to the music. According to Jerry Bass, in 1972, Jerry Garcia performed 86 times with the Grateful Dead, 64 times with Garcia Saunders, and a half dozen times on an East Coast tour with Howard Wales, plus assorted sit-ins, not counting studio sessions or rehearsals. With two groups running smoothly, in early 1973, Jerry Garcia decided it was time to start another new band. Oh, 
But Older Than the Way was pretty different from Garcia Saunders for a lot of reasons, with the smallest of official legacies and a massive impact. In some ways, Garcia was resuming a career he'd put aside only eight years earlier. Here's how he described his banjo days to Joe Smith in 1988. By 59, I didn't think it was cool anymore to play rock and roll. Rock and roll was getting to be unfashionable, you know? And somebody turned me on to folk music, and I heard that sound of bluegrass banjo, and that completely copped my attention. From 1961 to perhaps early 1965, Garcia immersed himself in banjo. If you're interested in that, we recommend the Before the Dead box set, which we've posted a link to at dead.net slash deadcast. So that was like a three-year, four-year excursion into that, into that world where I really learned how to, to pick things apart. You know, that was the way you had to learn bluegrass banjo. You had to slow the records down and learn it note for note and like that. So that gave me that discipline to learn how to do that stuff. But there was a transition, as he told Ben Fong Torres on KSAN in 1975. The instrument just stopped being flexible. It stopped being in- interesting. And it was, I didn't really decide it. It just, mm-hmm. like, I can't play this thing anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then, you know, I mean, LSD just, it made me want to hear longer sounds and be freer and not be restricted so much musically or, uh, and not be such a victim of uh, self-discipline. Jerry Garcia's adventures in bluegrass are too numerous to recount today. But the one with the most lasting impact was an encounter during his cross-country bluegrass odyssey in the summer of 1964. This is from Dennis McNally's Jerry on Jerry audiobook, available from Hachette. That's really how I met them mostly, except for Grisman. I met him in a parking lot in Pennsylvania at, uh, at Sunset Park, a bluegrass park we picked together. Uh-huh. And he knew, knew of me because my reputation had spread to the East Coast with my friends. I was known by reputation, really, you know. Right. So I, I might as well have been there, but I couldn't, have, I couldn't have hacked it. I don't think it was too ugly for me. We spoke with David Grisman in 2020 for our shows about American beauty, and here's how he recalled it. They didn't have festivals in 1964. It was a country music park called Sunset Park in West Grove, Pennsylvania. And every Sunday afternoon in the summer, they had shows and a lot of more bluegrass shows. So that's how I got to hear bluegrass. And Jerry, too, he was on a little pilgrimage across the country that summer. And uh, he showed up there at a Bill Monroe show. We spoke a lot more about bluegrass and Olden in the Way than we did about David's brief but right-on contributions to American beauty. David Grisman was a serious Bill Monroe head, which is also how we met Monroe's latest singer in the mid-60s. We're so honored to welcome to the Deadcast the most righteous Peter Rowan. He would show up at all the Bill Monroe shows up in the Northeast, and we just got to be friends. Plus, we were we were partners in in uh, <laughs> in recreational pastimes, but I mean, he was very free-thinking. I mean, David is very free-thinking. I could present a new tune that I had written that had no place in bluegrass, and he'd go, oh, yeah, you know, and that was the basis of the Earth Opera material, was stuff I had written in Nashville that was just sort of, on the surface, not really country music. The two played together in a few bluegrass combos, including the briefly-lived 1968 ensemble, The Bluegrass Dropouts, also featuring fiddlin' Richard Green and banjo player Bill Keith, a former member of Monroe's band and legend in his own right. But together, Peter Rowan and David Grisman founded Earth Opera. Originally, it was just David and I, and we modeled our duet 
playing on the uh, band that was called the Incredible String Band. I mean, we approached it from that point of view, just two instruments. And then when Earth, Earth Opera became a bass and drums and then even horns. All winter long, while the Earth turns around, we'll stay on. Sleep well, my love, when the springtime returns, we'll be gone. That was from the group's second album, The Great American Eagle Tragedy, featuring viola from John Cale, recently departed from the Velvet Underground. To me, they make a lot more sense thinking about them as being modeled on the incredible string band. But Earth Opera ran aground, Peter Rowan joined C-Train, made an album with Sir George Martin, and David Grisman and Richard Loren managed Rowan's younger brothers and relocated to Stinson in 1971. Everybody up to speed? David and Jerry, you know, bluegrass people seek each other out. And Garcia had been a bluegrass banjo player early on. And he uh, he and David hit it off. You know, anywhere that David was going to be, he'd find bluegrass. Jerry Garcia had put his banjo mostly behind him and was deep into the pedal steel guitar, joining Marmaduke and David Nelson in the new Riders of the Purple Sage. But by the end of 1971, he'd stepped aside from the new Riders. At some point the previous year, he'd picked up the banjo again more seriously. And it's hard to know for sure but it didn't hurt that a few world-class bluegrass pickers were massing at the bottom of the hill. David Grisman. When I moved out to California, I moved to uh, Stinson Beach. And not long, you know, I think Jerry, when I first moved out there, he was living in Novato. I visited him there. And then he moved to Stinson Beach a little bit after that. And uh, we started hanging out and... Not long after that, Peter Rowan moved to Stinson Beach. His brothers lived there and uh, that I was working with as a producer. And uh, I brought Peter up to Jerry's house. He lived in the highest house up on the hill. And I took Peter up there to meet Jerry. And uh, we just naturally started playing bluegrass because both Peter and I had worked in real bluegrass bands. Peter Rowan. Old in the way was the, it, the sun has gone down. We've all had supper. Let's go up to Jerry's house and pick. And Jerry was at that time, you know, he had two young girls. Uh, Trixie, Trixie and, Anna, and uh, Annabelle were both living there with him and Mountain Girl. And it was just a special time. They had settled, you know, as a family. And, you know, if you I look over the history of the whole thing, that moment of domestic bliss didn't last forever. He loved to play bluegrass, and so Peter, you know, he had played with Bill Monroe, and I played with Red Allen, so uh, we just started going up there and jamming on bluegrass tunes, and and Jerry pretty much immediately said, well, you know, I can get us gigs, and uh, yeah, we, we, we needed, <laughs> made about 150 bucks a night, which was even split. It was a lot of money back in, in those days. Richard Loren. Jerry said, well, hey, man, you know, this is really this is really cool. Let's play a few gigs. So first couple of gigs, the, the Rome brothers played. They played it in, in Stinson Beach at the Firehouse. Jerry, he could fill all those clubs, the Lion's Share in San Anselmo, the Boarding House. We played, there was a place called Homer's Warehouse in Palo Alto and 
the Keystone Berkeley, the Keystone Palo Alto. We played, you know, we, he, he liked to play all the time. Jerry didn't like to rehearse very much, you know. He was just play. You know, with Jerry in the band, of course, we we automatically had an audience because uh, as Jerry, even with Merle Saunders and the Grateful Dead, he had a, a great local following in the Bay Area. And it was all by chance that we all sort of, by chance or by wizardry, I don't know which, but we we all ended up out there, and we actually had work, you know, because bluegrass is not a is not a place to go for work. The trio of Grisman, Rowan, and Garcia represented something fairly powerful that's worth examining. Joju Peel. You know what? What drove Jerry was more music with great players, more music, less bullshit. And Olden in the Way was absolutely perfect. He didn't even need to bring a roadie. He didn't need to bring anybody to haul amps for him. He could just show up with his banjo. Great music, low key, no pressure, no expectations. You know, of the frontline players, he was the least accomplished. Whether it was Richard Green or Vassar on the fiddle, you know, between Rowan, Grisman, and Green, or Rowan, Grisman, and Vassar, Garcia was the least accomplished. And so it was challenging for him. He was young and hungry and, and had all the energy in the world. And that was the sweet spot, that he could have challenging music with friends who were hot pickers and without having to be to deal with all the beats. David Grisman was a 27-year-old mandolin phenom who'd not quite found a place for his mandolin playing just yet. He was a veteran of the festival circuit, numerous get-together bands, his Earth Opera partnership with Peter Rowan, a side of managerial hustle with Richard Loren, and an exacting vision for his own music that he hadn't yet fulfilled. But even having a charismatic banjo player and shredding mandolinist isn't quite enough for a bluegrass group, as Grisman points out. And I just felt like, you know, I always thought, well, bluegrass is is half a vocal style. And I never thought much of my singing. You know, Pete Rohn was a great bluegrass singer, and, and Jerry was a better singer than me. I discovered Olden in the Way pretty early in my own music listening life, and the Rowan Garcia vocal blend is one of my all-time favorites. But it took me years to realize the full scope of Peter Rowan. He's got a handful of original songs on the Olden in the Way album released in 1975, but it wasn't until I started listening to their performances that I realized not only how big the repertoire was, but how many Peter Rowan tunes were in it. Richard Loren. Peter Rowan is the most under, undervalued, under-understood, under-exposed, uh, what he's underappreciated folk rock musician songwriter. He is, he goes, I mean, I can't believe he's not world famous. You know, he is in his way. Here's the thing is I knew that if we were going to play bluegrass, I had, as a writer, I had to put something in there that was going to interest a guy like David Grisman, who was always looking for something new. Oh, right from the beginning, because they were the songs that C-Train wouldn't do. 
they were they were they were quote too funky too country. They didn't have that the ear for that. But Jerry and David had the ear. You know what I mean? It was like oh well yeah these are this we know what we we know what to do with these songs. I'll meet you at Alamo Mission. We can say our Some people point out to Midnight Moonlight is the first song that said, okay, here are two chords. This is the solo. It's just two chords. And you can play over the solo, which was sort of my idea that have a have a completely different emotional break feel in the middle of the song uh, where people can just play freely. The interesting thing about them for me was, again, to, to make them more, uh, not challenging, but more uh, fun for the, you know, instrumentalists to put the passing chords in. If Midnight Moonlight was to be a straight bluegrass song, it would only be like A and E. There, you wouldn't have put all the, the, the F sharp minor and, the, you know, the B minors and all the passing chords. I put the passing chords in because it basically is what was left out of all the old bluegrass songs. I put them in my songs because I felt they had an emotional appeal. And also Jack Bonus's song, the hobo song, had similar, you know what I mean? Hobo song was hardly traditional bluegrass fare. Jack Bonus was a Bay Area horn player of weird repute who recorded a solo record for the Jefferson Airplane's Grunt Records imprint in 1972 that featured both David Grisman and Peter Rowan's brothers. It was like, okay, all these songs are related. They, a lot of them have a lot of the same chords. Wild Horses, you know, it's got that B minor in there in the key of A. And, uh, you know, it, it was that, that was a chord that became popular in bluegrass like the Osmer brothers or the country gentlemen would go from an a uh, an a to a b minor or or g to a a minor it 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 has a certain emotional quality that bob dylan was was pretty pretty influential on that he and 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 the beatles but it was it was part of the music of the 60s and and in bluegrass or, or a folk music, they had started using that chord. It has an emotional pull uh, to, to make that chord change. Panama Red, Panama Red, 
without dwelling on that chord change in itself, all those songs that came into Panama Red, it has a B minor in it. Midnight Moonly has the B, B minor. Wild Horses has the B minor. The Hobo Song has the B minor. In relationship to the keys therein, uh, has that emotional quality. I think it united those songs. I think it made a a group of original songs that that had a, a identifiable feel, which is kind of what you want. You know what I mean? You want a, an identity with a with uh, um, something recognizable about the material. And then to contrast uh, those types of songs with uh, uh, White Doves, you know, for instance, is like a beautiful contrast because then White Doves, although it's in the same keys and same chords, it it takes a simpler approach and it's very slow. There was a nice contrast between everything, and yet there was a there was a, a, a thread through it all. In the deep rolling We were rehearsing Panama Red and L.A. Cowboy, and I was introducing my material to the band, and he said, you know, hey, man, you should take these tunes to Marmaduke, and Nelson, the new writers, are making a record. And I guess that's one of the first records that Jerry wasn't to be part of. It was like they they did those tracks in Nashville. With, I believe Norbert Putman was the producer. And I had never pitched a song to anybody before. And, I, and they, he said, yeah, they're rehearsing over at some place in San Rafael. And I I said, you, you think I could just go over and sing it to them? And he goes, yeah, man. Peter Rowan's song would provide the title and first track of The Adventures of Panama Red by the New Riders of the Purple Sage, released in the fall of 1973. Both songs were perfect additions to the New Riders' Dope Smoke and Cannon. Jerry Garcia would perform Rowan's Midnight Moonlight and Mississippi Moon for most of his solo career. While Olden and the Way worked hard at being casual, their existence proved a little more serious. They played at least 47 shows in 1973. The Olden and the Way look like a band, sound like a band, and unquestionably were a band in every sense of the word. They were a bluegrass band, which is a far more fluid thing than a rock band. Like jazz, it's accepted that players come and go and sometimes align perfectly for the briefest of moments. That February, just as Olden and the Way were starting up, while the dead were on tour, Rowan and Grisman accepted a gig back in Bill Monroe on a TV special in Los Angeles as representatives of the next generation of bluegrass players. 
But Monroe's bus broke down, and they had another new band on their hands. Mule Skinner was promptly signed to Warner Brothers. Alongside their old comrade, Richard Green, on fiddle, Mule Skinner featured the phenomenal guitarist Clarence White, who Jerry Garcia had once followed cross-country when White was a member of the Kentucky Colonels and who'd gone on to join the Birds. Mule Skinner was just a live moment that we had. It was just something we had. we We were so used to doing it that way, right? We weren't a studio band, but to make a record was, you know, and, uh, you know, a vehicle for what? Basically, it, it, I don't think the record company pushed it. I think they just figured, well, what the heck, you know, here's here's a tax write-off. It's a good good musical moment. You know, without management, without the thing being organized on the highest level, which is not always the most uh, clean level. It was a brilliant musical moment, though, right in the middle of Olden in the Way's existence. One more fluid assemblage of world-class players. For the generation that included Grisman and Rowan, their time was just about here. We're not thinking about the marketplace. We're thinking about the music. We're thinking about the, the joy of the whole thing, you know, the, the really the buzz, you know. We did it for the buzz. You can put that on my tombstone. We did it for the buzz. <laughs> the buzz was definitely good. But things were also getting slightly real. The mule-skinner moment passed all too quickly. They formed spontaneously in February 1973 recorded a studio album at the end of March, bringing John Kahn along with them, and then it was over. It was Warner Brothers, and it, and you have to wait on a label like that. When are they going to release it, you know? Clarence sadly met his end before the album was released. Clarence White died in July of 1973, tragically hit by a car while loading out from a show and in Mule Skinner all too soon. It was an unimaginable tragedy. And it's impossible not to wonder how Mule Skinner and Olden in the Way might have found a happy coexistence. He was 29. There's a lot of talk about influence in music, and it's not unfair to count Olden in the Way as one of the Grateful Dead's biggest influences in 1973. Take a gander at this version of Cumberland Blues from March 28th in Springfield, Massachusetts. Now Dave's pick 16, exactly when the rest of Olden in the Way was busy in the studio with Mule Skinner. And tell me Garcia's guitar playing isn't banjo freshened. But 
Both Olden in the Way and Garcia's group with Merle Saunders had fairly enormous repertoires that were constantly evolving, with dozens of bluegrass tunes, spirituals, blues numbers, jazz charts, R&B covers, originals by Peter Rowan, and more, all coursing through Jerry Garcia's music in 1973. Eyes of the World from Kizar 73 on the new Here Comes Sunshine box set, where you can almost hear those songbooks colliding into something new inside the Grateful Dead. The precision of bluegrass skipping over jazz changes and the Dead's particular feel. Joju Peel finds this period especially compelling. The year is amazing for Jerry as an artist, and April 1973 shows the man just busy as hell, right? Something like 24 musical events in the month, um, and maybe even 24 in the last 27 days. I have a post about it. And the combination of you know, playing mostly black contemporary stuff with Merle and then playing White Roots stuff with Olden in the Way. And it's absolutely thrilling. So that's my first, you know, hit on the period is that it's an efflorescence artistically and musically, right? And, you know, with a young man's energy. So it's it's really a sweet spot for him. In 1973, Jerry Garcia co-owned a record label. By the beginning of 1974, he co-owned two. And yet live at Keystone, the debut by the Garcia Saunders group wasn't on either. Nor was it on Garcia's longtime label Warner Brothers, but Fantasy Records, the biggest independent label in the Bay Area. Merle Jr. When I first started hanging out, they were owned by the Weiss brothers. This guy, Max Weiss, was the guy I remember. But yeah, they were there, and then they had a bunch of... They were mainly mainly a jazz act. I think one of the biggest ones was like Vince Guaraldi had done. I think they'd done the first Peanut probably around, or Charlie Brown, like a 64, 65. But they were a big jazz label and then Credence. With the perennial bestseller of Vince Guaraldi's Charlie Brown Christmas and the eye-popping and briefly unstoppable hit machine of Credence Clearwater Revival, led by former fantasy stockboy John Fogarty, Fantasy was a pretty happening place in the early 70s when Merle Saunders returned to the Bay Area and took up a spot as house organist. After heavy turbulence, the group's next appearance on a record was to back another fantasy artist. She didn't leave nothing, 
no trace of behind. She didn't leave numbers for me to be fine, and so I'm leaving downtown. Yes, I'm leaving downtown. Well, I'm bleeding downtown. I miss my sister today. That was Hold On Annie Mae from Excalibur, the 1972 solo debut by Tom Fogarty, recently exiled from Creedence Clearwater Revival. Over 1971 and 1972, he'd become a fixture with the Garcia Saunders Band. The prospect of a supergroup featuring Saunders alongside a member of the Grateful Dead and Creedence Clearwater Revival had fantasy pretty stoked. For a loose aggregation of people, like the record, the record company had other ideas. The marketing ideas, when they got together... Tom's ex-bandmates from Credence would stop by to support him. Yeah, Doug and Stu, yeah. Uncle Doug, Uncle Stu, yeah. <laughs> I still call them that. And they were my father's friends until the end. The original band was Los Saunders, Garcia, and Fogarty. That's how it started. And I think Tom lasted probably like a year, year and a half. And then he didn't, he didn't like the scene so much and wanted to do his own thing. Tom Fogarty left in late 1972, around the time Sarah Fulcher sang a few gigs with the band, a configuration that can be heard on Garcia Live Volume 12. She's got an occasionally raw rap from tape collectors, but I think it's unfair. To my ears, Sarah Fulcher's vocals are a lot more like Pigpen than Donna Jean Godshow, and she fearlessly improvised verses out of thin air. You might think you know all the words to How Sweet It Is, but now when Sarah's singing. I wrote liner notes for that edition of Garcia Live and interviewed Sarah extensively. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. That recording, from January 23rd, 1973 at the boarding house, has a backstory all its own. Thanks to Joju Peel's work spelunking in the Grateful Dead's archives at UC Santa Cruz. The Jerry and Merle shows in January, after a couple of warm-ups, start to show a new level of seriousness and I think this is driven by the, what ended up as the fantasy record. They gave the band a kind of a name, the Merle Saunders Experience. And that was how Rex labeled the tapes. And they never mentioned it publicly, as far as I know. But that's how the tapes were labeled. And the second thing, of course, is the taping. So before 1973, one of the reasons... You know, we don't know much about the band in 1971, 72, is that Rex and Betty weren't taping, at least not systematically. Though Richard Loren had established an office for Garcia's solo ventures, from an outside perspective, it was a complete tangle of expenses. The intermingling of the finances of Jerry Garcia as a business entity and the Grateful Dead as a business entity, were it was catastrophic for everyone involved. 73 is, of course, when Megadad really hits. 
giant stadium shows, the small number of, of big paying shows, and obviously Watkins Glen. But it's one thing to run a hip economy and hippie handshakes and, and stuff when you don't have that much money flowing through. But now there's just a lot more money sloshing around. That doesn't mean they used it more carefully or judiciously. In terms of the music itself, for now, that's neither here nor there. But one indisputable fact is that the increased flow of money left an increased paper trail that scholars can ponder in the Dead's archive, with Jerry Garcia's solo business fully intermingled with the Dead's. So the January 23rd, 1973, the opening night at the boarding house, they spent $1,200 on tape, including those big, giant, custom-made, 14-inch diameter Ampex 207s that Alembic was, I think that's what they did for Europe 72. And all of these other gizmos and gadgets and the receipts are in the Grateful Dead archive. It might not be a lost album exactly, but after using the Alembic MM-1000 to capture the Dead's New Year's show at Winterland, it seems like it went right back to work at the boarding house a few weeks later. The recordings didn't quite catch, and they kept refining the band. Later in the spring, George Tickner, who'd go on to co-found Journey, played second guitar for a while. George Tickner played because Garcia was used to having another guitar player. And I don't think Tickner sang, but he definitely, because he was part of that whole East Bay scene as well. Bill Kreutzmann filled in on occasion. Kreutzmann was like, he was more like an R&B drummer versus a rock drummer. I mean, to me, because he was, he was pretty steady. The solid beat wasn't, it, it wasn't funky, but it was solid, like Bernard Purdy. And I think Kortzman was the one that turned us on to the meters. One of the live at Keystone songs was from a meters record. It's, it's, a, it's, it's sort of like an homage to the meters. Finders Keepers is like an homage to the meters. of personnel churn is consistent with a kind of searching for the sound, which is partly driven by what's going to play on a record. And they ended up stripping it all away and just going with the quartet. And I don't know what drove that decision. It could have easily been an artistic decision that it wasn't going to work with Sarah and George Tickner had other plans in his life, so it could have been a personal decision for him. I'm quite sure that they divided the money up equally from that record. Richard Loren. The Keystone were all recorded by Betty Cantor. He came in and recorded every show of Merle and Jerry locally. Betty would give a copy of the cassette to Jerry at the end of the show. When I was, was hanging with Jerry in the mornings, or even back in the office, we would play some of the music. Live at Keystone was done as a multi-track. Matthews and Betty, but I mean, I think they, they, cause they had the recording thing. I, I think the machine was up in the, up in the sound booth. Live at Keystone was recorded over two nights, July 10th and 11th, 1973. And it wasn't exactly a standard show for the band. Though they'd been together for nearly three years, most of the material had been introduced only in the previous months or weeks. 
The recording of Jimmy Cliff's The Harder They Come on the album is the earliest known version by the band. And as sure as the sun will shine Gonna get my share What's mine And then the heart may come Out of the fall One and all And then the heart may come Out of the fall My Funny Valentine by Rodgers and Hart was also a virtually brand new addition to the repertoire. Last episode, Rosie McGee told us about the Annie Leibovitz shoot in San Rafael, which is very close in time to the photos she shot for the Garcia Saunders album. They were shot during the, those two or three days that they recorded live at Keystone. That is actually Keystone, and that picture, that was like one of Annie Leibovitz's first gigs out of college. I think she had just graduated San Francisco State maybe a year or two before, and she was just starting to get gigs from Rolling Stone magazine, which was in San Francisco at the time. And that picture is totally staged. That was Annie's, because I think Annie was like the director anyway. So I think it was like her precursor to whatever, or it, it, it evolved into like the Vanity Fair shots where she's shooting all those people. But it was the first time she used the panorama camera. And every, I'm, I remember, because I was like, I think I was like 14 when that happened. But yeah, that was that was Annie's, and she got up on a thing. I remember they just went and grabbed people in the audience to put in there. I think I think six or seven people were just from the audience, but everyone else everyone else was associated with the band, and it was just everyone was just doing their thing, and she just shot the pictures. It was the band and some of their things. The guy, the club owner, Freddie, who owned the club, Freddie Herrera, an important figure in Garcia's solo musical life. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast to Joju Peel's article about their relationship. You can see Merle Jr. sitting right next to his dad. I think Paul Pena's in there. You can see him down in like the right-hand corner. The author of Steve Miller's Jet Airliner. Pena was the opening act that night. But Garcia, and they were like roadies, and then people, a couple of the women that worked in the dead office, and then a couple people that worked in the fantasy office were in that picture. And then the cop was Smitty. And Smitty was like the back... He, he used to run backstage at Winterland. That was the cop from the door. But he actually worked at Keystone Berkeley. And the same thing, the guy who was the nun was the doorman at Keystone San Francisco. Maybe Clyde Williams, a.k.a. Willie, Richard Loren. If you look at that picture, I'm to the left of the nun. I think I'm, I don't know, sitting with my knees up. One person not in the Keystone photo who appears on the album is David Grisman. Grisman overdubbed the mandolin solo in that in that song. He wasn't there live.
love the way the mandolin shimmers all across positively 4th Street. Jerry Garcia's musical world certainly weren't separate, and they'd continue to crash together as we'll hear over the next batch of deadcasts. With photo shoots and record company contracts, the Garcia-Saunders group was definitely getting real, though they managed to avoid having a name for a little while longer. When Live at Keystone was released in the fall, it was credited to the four musicians, with Merle's name at the top, followed by Garcia and the rhythm section. And while Garcia and Saunders had to deal with paperwork, Olden and the Way stayed resolutely casual. They soon developed their own alter egos. Richard Loren. Everybody had a nickname in Olden and the Way. You know, uh, Peter was red because he'd written Panama Red. Brisbane loved Garcia Spud, and Garcia named David Dog. He gave him the name Dog. And I was called Zippy because I was always that kind of moving, moving very quickly. I was a a high energy kind of guy. Thanks, Zippy. And, you know, the band was a whole lot of fun for me. I loved the music. The guys were a hoot to be around. And there was no pain in the ass technical complications. Well, except maybe one. It was just us and actually Bear. Bear was uh, our, our unexpected presence was Bear, Housley. He took it upon himself to show up at all the band gigs before showtime and set up the mics and all the gear for Old Men Away. Peter Rowan. Owsley, who was known as Bear, he lived probably, you know, a quarter of a mile from me. And the first thing I noticed was that his dog <laughs> suddenly came and lived with us. And it was like, what's going on? You know, it's like, even the dog doesn't want to live there anymore. <laughs> so the dog, <laughs> and so we named the dog Vajra, name of a Tibetan uh, symbol of enlightenment. And this dog was very unusual. Uh, he was just a puppy and had just decided to live at our house. And uh, we accepted him. And I told Bear, I said, this, your dog's down here. And he goes, well, if he wants to be there, man, that it's meant to be. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I said, we'll take care of him. He was a beautiful dog. He was an Australian shepherd. And he remained to be a mystical sort of, uh, a mystical sort of canine Buddha, I think you would have to say. (laughs) A canine Buddha. You'd often find him uh, sitting, you know, with his front paws crossed and about, you know, six other dogs across from him at attention, you know, and he'd be like, transmitting something to these other mutts that were opposite him. They'd be sitting in a, they'd be sitting in a half circle. You know, it was, it was odd. It was really odd. David Grisman. He was a character. And, uh, um, well, he, of course, had designed and ran the original monster sound system for the Grateful Dead. And then he went bye-bye, you know, he got busted for making LSD and, uh, he went to prison, you know, and he he came out right when we were starting to play these clubs. He had a Nagra, stereo Nagra tape machine, very fine Swiss tape recorder. And he had a stereo Nagra, which was a rare thing. And uh, he just f- followed the band around recording. He took it upon himself to turn up at the get band's gigs late, just before showtime. With his mics and recording gear. He'd fiddle around endlessly with his equipment until everything was precisely adjusted, which caused long performance delays. He drove Jerry crazy. He would pace up and down, seething, 
until the signal was given by Bear that we're ready to go now. That was like an hour after showtime. Jerry would kind of screw with them, you know. He he wouldn't let them have enough time to set up or, he, you know, he was just giving them shit for some reason. You know, not serious shit, but enough to remember. It was his devotion that has kept alive this spirit of bears. This is important. This needs to be recorded. Without Bear, we wouldn't have had a record. I'm sure Jerry, Jerry was the, the, the leader. I'm sure he said, hey, Bear, man, let's get this on tape. I'm sure Jerry said that because the Grateful Dead had their own inner world of communications, responsibilities, and expectations. One interesting thing is that both David Grisman and Peter Rowan interpreted Bear's mega presence around Olden in the Way to mean that he'd been fired from the dead. But in fact, he remained on the band's weekly payroll as he worked as a consultant on the developing sound system. He received exactly the same amount as the musicians on stage, and perhaps simply took it upon himself to become the recordist. He certainly made a lot of tapes. To provide an answer of exactly how many, and much more besides, please welcome back from the Owsley Stanley Foundation, Hawk. We have 105 reels that he recorded of Olden in the Way between up. April 21st, 1973, and October 8th, 1973. Eight months after he got out of prison, he started doing this. And this is just, it's an amazing collection of, of rare gems that we have. He delivered it from beginning to end, to driving us crazy by being an hour late or more at every show, then setting it up. He was always late. We were on the road. We were on the road. We had to take a different flight. And then we said, fuck it, let him get there on his own. I mean, he he was like insane. I mean, he was a genius, a insane genius, you know. He was he was a great guy to meet. Jerry loved Bear. He loved him. And and he was the bear, you know, kind of like in all senses. I'll I'll tell you one funny one thing we were playing the Keystone one night and we we got there late. And we got on stage and, and nothing was ready and the microphones were all in disarray and everything was feeding back. And Bear hadn't gotten there to, in time to set it up. And we're all standing around, feedback everywhere, right? And Jerry walks up and he nudges me with his shoulder and he says, look at Bear, man. And it, we look up in the sound booth and there's Bear and he's like, He's, his face is lit by this green light of the of the board, you know, of the of the the faders and everything. There's sort of a green light on Bear's face, and he's got a a bunch of patch cords in his mouth, hanging down like snakes, and and a bunch more around his neck, right? Because you had to patch, he had to repatch everything from the rock and roll show, you know, acoustic music at the time you know, it was way down the list as far as like the skills, but bear was going to get it right. And, uh, Jerry says, <laughs> nudges me. He says, look up bear, man. I look up. He goes, he loves his job. <laughs> you know, there's bear his face lit green by the board up in the sound booth, you know, with his cables hanging out of his teeth. He just set up his, his mics and, and he give us uh, copies of the tapes and, and Jerry and I would listen to him up at Jerry's place. However salty the musicians may have gotten about Owsley's occasional delays, the tapes also hold the material proof that they were glad he was there, as Hawk points out. 
it appears to me that they very consciously and very conscientiously were taping every show. And there's one show in particular on July 18th, 73, in at the beginning, up in Katati, where the show ends. And it's funny, the show ends after Blue Mule. Somebody in the crowd screams, hey, you motherfuckers, play some more. But they don't play some more. Instead, David and Peter run right over to Bear, and you can hear it on the tape. They're eagerly asking him how the tape came out. And it's absolutely priceless. Like, they thought they nailed it. They immediately ran to Bear to say, Did, was it as good as we thought it is? Because we can't wait to hear the tape. There was one final missing piece to the puzzle, though. David Grisman. We didn't really have a regular fiddle player. I think there's even a radio show that's just Pete Rowan, me, and Jerry. And then uh, we played some gigs as a quartet without a fiddle. There was a guy named Brian Price, who was a a local San Francisco guy, and he played a a couple of gigs with us. He played a gig with us at the boarding house. I don't know if a tape exists of that. For you Newgrass scorekeepers out there, another interim fiddler was John Hartford, who passed briefly through the Garciaverse in April and May 1973, but an embedded fixture in the bluegrass world, where one can find all kinds of other recordings of him with Grisman, Rowan, and others. It was a bit later on, but there was one night when they couldn't get a fiddler, so they tried something new. Asley got it on tape. One of the most awesome surprises, there's a, um, a, com- a complete show where there's no fiddle that night, but Jack Bonus plays bluegrass sax for the entire set. Uh, that was, a, that was uh, at the Brig on uh, July 15th, 1973, the night that uh, Clarence White died. I don't think they knew it. I don't think that they they got the news until after the gig. Uh, I can only imagine how devastated they would have been. And there was no indication uh, during the course of the show. Um, But it's just, it's phenomenal. When I first started listening to it, the the sax actually sounds so appropriate playing the fiddle parts that it it tricked me (laughs) at first. I didn't even think about it. And then I realized, wait a second, that's a saxophone. (laughs) It's incredible. Then we started we started flying Richard Green up, and then I think in the summer of 73, Richard wanted to form his own band. And Jerry had booked us, uh, I think it was five gigs on the East Coast. And Richard turned that down because he was devoting his energy to his own band that he was forming. And so we're sitting there, who are we going to get? You know, and these were like large venues, so we pretty much could afford to hire any bluegrass fiddle player at the time. So, you know, Peter said, I have Vassar Clemens' phone number. After playing a bluegrass show with Bill Monroe, and we were driving the bus, and, you know, a big deal for bluegrass people, because they're really road people, is to eat together. You know, you'll hear people say, oh, I knew him well, we ate together. (laughs) You know, it's like that was... You know, we, we survived life together. We ate food together, you know. And so we were we stopped at Rule's house to have breakfast at 2 in the morning coming out of uh, Monroe, Louisiana, you know. And it was a big honor for folks to stay up all night, wait for Bill Monroe to arrive and have breakfast, you know, and move on about 4 in the morning and keep on driving back to Nashville and all that. So, you know, just after midnight might have been something like that. We got there, and while we were eating, he started playing some tapes, reel-to-reel tapes. 
while we're having breakfast and visiting, you know, we're visiting. And uh, it was a tape from the New Year's at his house from a few months before. And this fiddle playing was just unreal. And he said, that's Vassar. Vassar Clements was a former bluegrass boy, too, playing with Bill Monroe as a teen in the early 1950s and later with the McReynolds brothers. That was Vassar Clements performing with Bill Monroe on Bluegrass Ramble in 1950, a quietly radical player helping to urge jazz and bluegrass ever closer, a mission he'd continue when a group of musicians nearly 20 years younger called him for a gig. And I called Vassar, and I didn't know Vassar, and he's, oh, hi, Pete, how are you doing? It was like, we've never met, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but that's bluegrass. If you're in the bluegrass, if, you're, if you've been a bluegrass boy, you're known, you know what I mean? You're, you're known, you're part of it. And uh, I was just like meeting an old friend, really, Vassar, and uh, I said, we got a little tour together here on the West Coast little West Coast band with uh, me and Grisman and Jerry Garcia. He said, just send me a ticket, Pete. I don't need to know anything else. It was like, whoa, <laughs> okay. And yeah, and so we sent him a ticket and he met us in Boston. And so we just called him up and, and he was game, you know. And so he showed up the day before the first gig and we played the tunes and we were all like starstruck. We were all like, uh, we were playing one of the original, with one of the original masters of this music. And he was, I think Vassar is kind of really at, really at his height of his powers on those tapes. He quickly earned a nickname in the band too. And Vassar was clam because he always had a, a pipe in his mouth. Vassar Clements' Kissimmee Kid, released on the Olden and the Way album and right at home next to Peter Rowan's compositions. Vassar was hired for what turned out to be the band's soul tour, a story we'll actually save for another day. There was no turning back. It was perfect, you know, because Vassar was the, the golden thread that, that wove it all together. In October 1973, as the Dead prepared to release Wake of the Flood, Olden and the Way played a pair of weekend shows at the boarding house in San Francisco. David Grisman. That was just another venue that we, we played at. But it was downstairs. You'd go in and then go downstairs. A dark club. Monroe was, I don't know, he was probably, well, he was born in 67, so he'd have been about five years old. He and Jenny Maldor, Maria's uh, daughter, used to 
they were down there and they they just were like wild Indians running around. It was on Bush Street in, in uh, San Francisco, and I know it was down it was uh, up the street or down the street. I would consider up, up because it was like a hill going down, and uh, from the uh, the first Thai restaurant I ever used to go to. But uh, yeah, there were a lot of acts that it was like a folk club or a you know they had different. I remember Olden and the Way there played one time with the Chieftains. That was Carrick Fergus from the Chieftains October 1st, 1973 performance at the Boarding House gorgeously recorded by Owsley Stanley, preserved and released by the Owsley Stanley Foundation. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. Hawk. Jerry saw immediately the connection to his musical heritage when he heard the Chieftains play and invited them to open for Old Men Away because it was the perfect pairing of you know, bluegrass and its antecedents uh, sharing the same stage. A week later, Old in the Way played at the boarding house again, and Owsley recorded it as usual. He was particularly pleased, and I think the band was generally, with all the shows in October of 73. And he had marked with Stars, which is about as effusive, as effusive as he gets. It turned out to be one of the band's very last gigs. They played once more in November in Sonoma, and then a brief set at the Golden State Country Bluegrass Festival in early 1974. David Grisman. Jerry wanted me to be the leader of that band, and I, I just presumed Jerry, I just, you know, he's the guy that through the crowds, and uh, I, I just regarded him as the leader. I don't know what Pete Rowan thought about it, but um, I just thought it was time for me to do my own thing, which I've been kind of emerging, writing uh, tunes, and uh, for whatever reason, uh, it we just didn't continue doing that. Richard Loren. The thing about it is it all ended too soon. They disbanded within a year. The members returned to their own projects, leaving a legacy that wasn't defied convention. And it was incredible. Bluegrass bands I had played in Kentucky. I played with the Kentucky Colonels. Bluegrass is a pretty virtuosic uh, music and I mean, it's probably gotten way too tight and slick through the years. But at the time, uh, I didn't appreciate everything about Olden in the way that I probably should have, because especially the fact that I didn't realize how much Jerry enjoyed that. But I, for a number of reasons, wasn't that ex- exuberant about it. So I kind of... Re- 
regret the fact that uh, we could have kept that going. But in a way, I don't regret it because it allowed me to go where I went. Somewhere in the midst of this, Olden and the Way recorded a studio album, or part of a studio album. It's hard to say. Peter Rowan. We went into Mickey Hart's studio, and we recorded four or five songs, and we didn't, they didn't have the spark of how we responded to a live audience. We weren't all geared up to make that big connection with the crowd, and it was self-conscious. But we did a nice version of I Can See Clearly Now. Well, that I'd like to hear, a song that never surfaced in their live repertoire. Peter Rowan remembers the recording session as being during the later part of the band. It's weird, you know, it, that was on the other side of the the curve. That was on, on the beginning of the downward slide. Jerry was starting to get busy with the dead again. There's a Melody Maker article published in the spring that seems to indicate that they'd already been in the studio by the end of March 1973 with a local fiddler. And there are some studio logs that suggest they may have been tweaking those tapes, or some tapes, at the record plant in the fall. But memories are blurry and no tapes have ever surfaced. We didn't know what we were doing. It was I, I don't think we got anything out of those studio recordings, but I'd love to hear them again, you know. They they can't they can't be that bad. <laughs> we were a good band. <laughs> there was no anger. I mean, those guys we all got along great. There was nothing to do with that at all. No no ill feeling, nothing at all. That, that you know, it's just people Jerry had gigs to do, Peter had stuff to do. Kind of like the Traveling Wilburys, you know, they, they just were together and then they, they both they went their ways. And then several years later, the Grateful Dead started their own record company, Round Records. Jerry called me up and asked me if I could put together with Owsley an album of Olden and the Way, which I did. The chronology of the Olden and the Way album is, like a lot of things, a bit hazy. But once again, thanks to the British music press, we have a few more clues. In early 1974, before the band had even played their final show, Time Out quoted Deadcast buddy Alan Trist as saying Olden in the Way would be the next release from Grateful Dead Records. It didn't happen exactly like that. As another Deadcast friend, Ken Hunt, discovered in 1980 when interviewing Jerry Garcia for the Dark Star zine, the delay was due in part to that familiar delayer of music, Owsley Stanley. But when Owsley finally got the recordings together with Grisman, they were incredible. There were these two evenings at, at the boarding house that were really well recorded, and the music seemed to come together. No, really, it's one of the most beautifully recorded live albums I know of, right up there with the Bill Evans trio at the Village Vanguard. And I only found 10 songs out of all that stuff, out of, uh, you know, four sets that had, you know, really a lot of tunes. I, I only found 10 that I thought were good enough to put on this LP. Everybody's a critic. Though David Grisman's world-class ears might have a strict filter, there are many hours of great olden in the way in the vault. Years later, Jerry and I got back together and uh, I had started a CD company, Acoustic Disc. 
And uh, one year, Jerry said, asked me to, I guess they had kept relicensing this original Olden in the Way record to various companies. And Jerry said to me, uh, why don't you guys put it out? You know, the contract's up. Well, it turned out the contract wasn't up. And so I said, well, you know, maybe we should check out all those other tunes from those two nights, you know. So we spent a few days in my studio listening to those shows. We both thought, hey, this stuff is pretty darn good, you know. <laughs> so um, that led to two more uh, releases of other tunes that had never been issued that we put out on acoustic disc. posted a link to the complete boarding house tapes at dead.net slash deadcast, as well as David Grisman's own acoustic disc podcast. We had a really cool thing, but I didn't appreciate it all that much at the time. And, and I was more or less headed in a different direction. So fortunately, Jerry and I got back together years later and uh, revisited all kinds of music. The legacy of Olden in the Way began before their album was even released. Right after Olden and the Way, I formed a band with Richard Green, fiddle player, who did some playing with Olden and the Way. Actually, there's a, there's a really good recording that we made in the record plant recording studio uh, with Richard on fiddle. But we started a band called the, the Great American String Band and later became the Great American Music Band. And that was kind of the birth of dog music. And uh, I started writing a, a lot of music uh, and continued to do that and, you know, ba basically made a career out of it. That wasn't bluegrass, you know. That's why I called it dog music. Jerry Garcia was an occasional member of the Great American String Band, the last music he would make with Grisman for a decade and a half, as Grisman set out on a path to transform acoustic music. Unfortunately, Part of the reason for the decade-and-a-half break in the Garcia-Grisman sessionography is because of Round Records' malarkey that resulted in Grisman not getting paid for Olden in the Way. Uh, that got worked out. Though John Hartford had helped put Vassar Clements back on the map on the steam-powered Aeroplane album, Olden in the Way got Vassar's playing in front of many more new ears. Richard Loren. Once he came here to play with Olden in the Way, Every musician in the Bay Area wanted, wanted Vassar on their record, you know, or involved with them. So he wound up actually playing on Keepers, uh, the Merle Saunders uh, solo album that had everybody on it. wasn't released until 1997. A few songs from the January 1974 session represents the fullest collision of Jerry Garcia's two extra-dead projects, Garcia, Saunders, and Khan, 
joined by drummer E.W. Wainwright, plus David Grisman on mandolin and Vassar Clements on fiddle. These bits are from That's All Right, as is this. The biggest impact of Olden in the Way is usually condensed to a factoid, that it was the best-selling bluegrass album of all time, at least until it was displaced by the soundtrack to O oh Brother Where Art Thou in 2001. Probably the best-selling bluegrass album of all time is the soundtrack to Deliverance. You know, Deliverance. But no matter how well Olden in the Way sold, and I'm not saying it didn't sell oodles by bluegrass standards. It turned successive generations of deadheads onto bluegrass and helped generate ever more progressive attitudes towards bluegrass and the musical spaces around it. Bluegrass was modern music, invented largely by Bill Monroe and the bluegrass boys that passed through his band, most importantly Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs, along with other innovators like Newgrass Revival, Hot Rise, and John Hartford, the members of Older in the Way, individually and together, helped point the way towards the future of bluegrass. Ironically, it was their innovations that truly turned bluegrass into a form of traditional music beyond the style of any individual musician in his band. In the 21st century, Olden in the Way remains a fantastic portal into bluegrass, pointing both backwards and forwards and sounding eternally like it's present. Thanks, Bear. Of course, Jerry Garcia and David Grisman would pick up their conversation with a fruitful partnership in the early 90s, a topic too deep for today. Garcia and Merle Saunders had a more sustained partnership than Olden in the Way. Merle Jr. hung around dead shows occasionally. So I remember going to shows and they would kind of take care of me. I mean, my girlfriend, my, the girl that I used to hang out with when I was in junior high, we'd go down to shows and we would, there were, I went to a bunch of New Year's shows and I remember my father having asked my girlfriend's mother, we're going to take your daughter to a show. We'll bring her back after midnight, you know, we'll down there. And my, we would park and my father would say, hey, meet, meet back here at the last song before Encore. Because we, we would leave before. But I remember, and we used to crawl into the wall of sound. We used to crawl into like where the speakers were when they had the wall of sound and just we would crawl into this cubby hole that was by where Billy entered the stage, and we would just sort of hang out in that in that little hole and pass Billy Jays. But hanging around the dead scene also pointed Merle Jr. towards a career path. I grew up around, like, Bear and Parrish and Ramrod and uh, Kid, uh, Joe Winslow, and, yeah, and the studio, there was a studio in San Francisco called His Master's Wills, but in the front of it, there was Olympics. So it was like Ron Wickersham and all those guys were like in the front of the studio. So I 
that's how I learned how to do guitars. I was a teenager. I wanted to be a recording engineer, and the, the studio, His Master's Wheels, which was, it used to be called something else, but it was on 60 Brady Street, and Olympic was in front. We've talked a lot about the influence of Alembic on the world of live audio over the last few years of the Deadcast. One very real way that the tech spread was when Alembic's employees and associates began to use it outside the sphere of San Francisco bands. I was always a tech guy. I was a tech for all my father's gear. And I got into guitars and tinkered with guitars. And then probably about 17 or 18, like all the local people, it was kind of like a joke for them to hire me away from my father. I went out on the road with David Crosby. I worked with Paul Kantner. And I had then I had done stuff on my own. I worked with Michael Jackson. I worked with Frank Zappa. I worked with Robert Cray, amongst other people. And I used to go out on the road with people and then just incorporate the technology that I had already known. I was on the road with the Hawkins family, and they had an acoustic guitar, and I remember they just let me borrow the Countryman piano pickup. The Merle Saunders experience transformed into Legion of Mary in 1974, before becoming the Jerry Garcia Band in 1975, minus Merle. Garcia and Saunders recombobulated for reconstruction in 1979 and periodically through the 80s. But the basic Garcia-Saunders songbook formed the core of the Jerry Garcia Band, with many of the songs debuted in 1973, staying in Garcia's repertoire all the way through 1995. But in some ways, 1973 was the key to it all. Joju Peel. Watkins Glen is 600,000 people on 728. And, you know, four days earlier, he's playing crab shops in Sacramento for 200 people. He was happy playing for 200 people, picking some banjo. And, and then he'd go and play for 600,000 people, you know, at the biggest gig ever. We'll let Olden in the Way pick us on out of here with their traditional set closer, Peter Rowan's Blue Mule, from October 1st, 1973 at the Boarding House, available from Acoustic Disc. Thanks very much for tuning in to the good old Grateful Dead cast. If you must know, I'm wearing a rather loungy caftan from my girlfriend's closet in solidarity with Jesse and all of our brothers and sisters out there fighting the good fight. Because in this family we know ain't no time to hate. I remember getting turned onto the Keystone recordings and being blown away by the depths of Jerry Garcia's musical ability. And I didn't think there was a way I could love that man's music anymore, but Bam, that music hit me and set the hook even deeper. And if this episode has turned some of you on to this music for the first time, enjoy your newfound rabbit hole. We'd like to thank our guests in this episode, David Grisman, Peter Rowan, Merle Saunders Jr., Richard Loren, Howard Wales, Hawk Simmons, and Joju Peel. Extra special thanks to our friend David Gans for helping by contributing audio from his interview archive. Thank you, David. And thanks very much to you for tuning in. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share an episode on your social media. 
And give us your 1973 tour stories by recording yours over at stories.dead.net. Executive producers for the good old Grateful Dead cast, Mark Pincus and Doran Tyson. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mahan Productions and Jesse Jarno. Special thanks to David Lemieux. All rights reserved.